Over the Ball is brought to you by Soccer America. Soccer America, the soccer paper of record. Go to SoccerAmerica.com and sign up for your subscription today. And by Nella from Fitbiomics. A Harvard doctor has found the probiotic strain that is found in most world-class athletes. Not all probiotics are the same. More information on all our sponsors at OverTheBall.com slash sponsors. Call or text us at 424-229-2247. That's 424-229-2247. Hey, this is Bob Lee, and you're listening to Over the Ball with Kevin Flynn, the world's game from an American perspective. Hey, everybody. Happy after 4th of July weekend. Welcome back to Over the Ball with Kevin Flynn, alongside Division II Coach of the Year and defending national champion Chris Shamanis. Chris, I hope you had a great holiday with the kids celebrating the birth of this great nation and let's hope that we can keep it for your kids as they get a little older yeah uh, happy fourth let's hope yeah. that it stays intact yeah i know man it's a crazy world right now i don't know what to tell my kid um looking forward to this week's interview we have Lori mifflin uh, an amazing woman an amazing background so uh she uh, she's been following soccer world cup cosmos all kinds of things so it'll be great to talk to her um, what I want to talk to you about, uh, real quickly, you're back from recruiting. So, uh, you're probably exhausted. You probably slept 20 hours straight. I would say how many games did you watch over the course of the week? Yeah, no, these days, uh, I mean, college coaches will all tell you it's, uh, you know, seven thirty eight AM start. And the last one goes at 5 PM. So you're done at six or seven. And that's, if they don't have lights, if they do have lights, they go further. So it's a marathon day and there are many of them back to back and you're on the field all day long and certain places, you know, if it's hot and you got to get sunscreen and hydrate and all that stuff, it's, it's a mission. It's a, and, and, and it's hard to keep your mind fresh. So you got to keep challenging yourself each day. All right. So uh, yeah, live and learn too, as you go out there, it's a a lot of, a lot of road hours to uh, to find some talent for your for your program. So um, I wanted to talk to you about the under twenties. The men uh, they went to a six uh, nil romp win, third straight Concacaf win. But I mean that gets them the berth in the in twenty twenty three in the under twenty World Cup and the Olympics. It's secured. Now they've won the men's championship. This is a really good sign, I think, um, for the United States. By the way, they beat Dominican Republic six nil. Which where did that come from? Uh, out of nowhere. Uh, I used to live in New York against uh, next door to a bunch of guys. They were all Dominicans, and I would try to talk soccer with them. They'd be like, no, man, no, man. Manny Ramirez, Manny Ramirez. That's mm-hmm. what I got my – and it was he, funny. Every guy, no matter how old they were, they all played with Manny Ramirez, apparently. I'm like, yeah, sure you did, fellas. <laughs> so I think the Olympic qualification is huge. We have not yep. qualified for many years. But at the same time, you know, we kind of changed the rules, you know, so it's, uh, mm. we couldn't qualify the old way. So now they're the, the qualification goes through the under twenties because the, the Olympics are an under 23 competition right. uh, on the men's side. And so the under 18s, under twenties, we do pretty well with those age groups typically. And so keeping that group intact as, as a qualifying group helped us and we've got through. So that's great for us. Good. Good news there. Um, one thing I was checking out in soccer America, uh, the article on uh, the amount of American players that are going to Belgium. Uh, and I, I spent a summer there playing there. I think that's actually a good place. It, well, it was a good place for Americans to go. And now it, it, it really seems you've got, you know, Kyle Duncan, uh, Jorge Hernandez, uh, Mark McKenzie, all kinds of players. And now Griffin Yao just, uh, just joined. What is the uh, secret sauce over in Belgium? 
Well, you know, when you when you go to Europe, the, the biggest question is playing time because that'll answer the that'll give you the answer to the next contract. So a lot of these young guys who are going over or going over not for this contract, but for the possibility of a big next contract, and you need to play to get the next contract. So, you know, that Belgium offers a, a professional league that that'll in many ways will give these guys a chance to jump in right away or play a lot of minutes early on in their career. And so it has some value for them to do that to create a you know a footing in europe play x number of games and then hopefully get sold on to a bigger club from there it seems like the progression is maybe belgium then the dutch league then the german league then maybe the premier league (laughs) yeah a little bit depends on how good you are right but yeah it's it's all relative so for us the question is pulisic right now and you know is he an everyday player at chelsea and if not should he go somewhere else and play more minutes so like those questions are, are there at all levels it's all relative Chelsea, man, a lot of trouble over there, a lot of tumult. And uh, I read an article in the New York Times last week about um, a suicide that was attributed to the pressures that were being put on from the senior marketing director. And they just said it's a it's kind of a shit show over Chelsea right now. So I don't know if that's the best place for Pulisic to be anyway. Uh, He certainly was undervalued, I felt. And so we'll see what happens with that one. And speaking of great players uh, that are Perhaps undervalued. I don't think Ronaldo's undervalued, but he's not happy at Man U and he, he wants out. That's no surprise to me. You? Yeah, he's interested. I mean, you know, this is an interesting one. So, you know, what what is the reason for going to Man United, you know, the second time in the first place? And then what has changed? And and I don't know if we have that answer. You know, it's uh is a chance to go back to a club where where he started, and that makes a ton of sense. Um, it can't be the hiring of, of Ten Hag. It's you know, he, he's a good up and coming coach. I don't think, yeah. you know, from the outside looking in, it doesn't look like he would create a stir that would create a problem for Ronaldo. So I, I'm not sure where this is all coming he might, from. He might go to Chelsea, Chris. Ulterior motive. They're talking about him going to Chelsea, which is a bigger shit show, I think, right now. Well, no, no. Manchester United's a bigger shit show. But, it's Champions uh, League. He wants to play in Champions yeah. League. Yeah. And he wants yeah. that, that next Ballon d'Or if he's got one more shot at it. But what it hit me was like, hey, gee, dude. A 27-year-old Ronaldo can't, you know, a 37-year-old Ronaldo can't ask what a 27-year-old Ronaldo asks for. There's definitely yeah. a shelf life there, even for the bionic man. Well, I'm, I'm interested in how his original, con- his, his contract with Man United was written, because is there a clause in there that says, hey, if, you, if we don't stay as a Champion League club, that I get to move on? No one's pointed to the contract, but I'm surprised that they didn't put something, something like that in there, or that would give him the option to stay or move. You know, because that's what he's pointing his finger at right now. He's pointing at, hey, I want to, I, I'm a player who should be at the Champions League level and aim to be at a Champions League club. So, I, Chris, I think he's got a year left at that level, maybe. So, um, I mean, look, I mean, he's, he's still an amazing player. I just don't know. Yeah. Your legs leave you awfully quick uh, at that level, especially with that half step that you need to at that level. If you lose it, you're suddenly... I don't know. I don't know if he'd ever be an average player, but he's he's had a great run. Um, I wanted to ask you this because this has really kind of hit me. The U.S. women beat Haiti. I'm worried that their qualifying process, not nearly as hard as the men's qualifying process. Now, here you have the women in Europe, in the Euros, uh, the competition that they're going to be facing. Um, they're going to be more battle hardened. Is that going to put the women at a disadvantage going in to the cup? Yeah, I mean, some it's look, it's not their fault. They have to qualify through CONCACAF. So you have to play who gets laid in front of you. And so that's that's just the schedule that they have. But oh, yeah. yeah, you know, the Euros, I don't know. It's taken 
on more, more momentum than ever before. I, you know, you, we used to look at it and say, okay, Sweden's going to be good. Germany's going to be good. Right. But Bigger. now you have Holland and England and you have so many other teams that are coming up, France, that are coming up through the ranks that are so strong that it becomes a really deeper pool and it becomes a really cool competition. And yeah, yeah they're going to be battle tested in ways that we all don't get you know, coming out of CONCACAF, especially, especially for our women's team, because they're dominant enough to be in the Euros and be a great team in the Euros, which would be great for their development, but they can't, they can't do that. They have to come out of CONCACAF. So it's going to be about scheduling friend friendlies and keeping the group focused in, in those ways. Yeah. You know, and that's going to be interesting too, with more American players leaving the NWSL, going overseas, playing there because the infrastructures are more solid, whether you're playing for Barcelona, Arsenal, all these teams um, that, we're going to be playing catch up. I think, well, I don't know if catch up is the word, but it's, uh, it's the ranks have closed. Yeah. I think there's true competition, you know, between the NWSL and the pro league that it offers, um, living in America, all, all the, the facilities, et cetera, are great for a lot of the international players, but at the same time, when it, it doesn't compare to, okay, Barcelona's in the game now, you know, and Manchester yeah. City's in the game now and Bayern Munich's in the game. Now that changes things a little bit, you know, because now sure. you're going over there and you're being plugged into, you know, a whole society of football, which is as, us as soccer people, the first, you know, every time we go to Europe, it's always the same exact thing. Like we love the idea of being dipped into a football crazy frenzy 24-7, right? So when right. we go there, we love it. And this is no different for the players when they go there. All right. All right. Good stuff, man. So uh, we have Laurie Mifflin coming up. So we'll take a break here. Laurie's had an amazing career uh, in soccer, covering World Cups uh, for the New York Times and uh, okay, for the Cosmos, which my eyes always light up, as I said. So, um, so let's take a quick break and we come back. Uh, we'll catch up with Laurie Mifflin. Call or text us at 424-229-2247. That's 424-229-2247. All right, our guest today, wow, what a career this woman has had. A Yale and Columbia graduate school, graduate, two of my safety schools. Uh, Lori Mifflin was the first women sports reporter to New York Daily News covering professional hockey, Olympics, uh, professional soccer with the Cosmos. My eyes always light up when I hear about the Cosmos. Whole bunch of World Cups. She's best known for her long career from 1982 to 2013 with the New York Times. She is now responsible for overseeing all editorial aspects of the Heckinger Report. Did I say it right, Lori? Yes, you did. All right, uh, for uh, journalism. So uh, with the focus on higher education. So I got to tell you, Lori, you know, I've known of you for a very long time. I got to have a nice chat with you when we were at uh, Paul Gardner's dinner that evening with all that soccer history sitting at that table. Um, it was pretty amazing. But then doing a little due diligence, checking out your your career, it it is pretty amazing. It, uh, it's been a wonderful ride, hasn't it? Tell us a little bit about it. Yeah, I've had a lot of fun in my career. I think one of the great things about journalism is that you can do so many different things. And from uh, starting out covering City Hall at the New York Daily News to moving into sports and then being in sports for a long time, then covered a lot of different things at the New York Times, including education, oddly enough, which is where I am now. And uh, what I devote all my professional time to now is covering education for the Heckinger Report. So yeah, a lot of fun along the way. Well, it's a pretty crazy time right now in the world of education. Uh, obviously, two of my sisters are teachers, so I've uh, sort of witnessed it firsthand what uh, everyone is going through. So it's very important. Um, a lot there, though. How did you go 
from you know reporting on City Hall to being a woman sports reporter like that. Uh, how did you make that transition? What what was the entree like? Well, it just I think the uh, simplest way to put it is that I've always been kind of stubborn about certain things when I see something that I don't think is right, and um, I noticed I knew from my interest in women's sports I played sports in college and was very involved in promoting women's sports in college and then at the daily news I noticed that the local Queens College basketball team was a, a national power of course this was in the early 70s when women believe it or not were not even in the NCAA they had their own separate organization called the AIAW but Queens College, coached by a legendary woman named Lucille Kaivalis, was going to the national championships. And back then it was a 16-team championship. And so I hadn't seen a word about it in the Daily News. And I went into the sports editor and I said, do you know that this is happening like right in our backyard? And we have a big banner across the front of the New York Daily News that says New York's hometown paper. So if we're the hometown paper, why are we not covering this team that might win the national championship? Wow. And his response was, well, do you want to go? Because he <laughs> couldn't imagine sending one of the guy sports writers to cover a women's basketball tournament. And, and I'm not exaggerating. People think that, that I'm being funny. That was true. And as a matter of fact, from there, that led to him asking me if I wanted to go to the Olympics in Montreal, which was the same year. Now we're talking about 1976. The women's college basketball tournament was in March. The Olympics were coming that summer. He came back to me. I was still working at City Hall. He said, yeah, do you want to go to Montreal and cover the Olympics? They're having girls basketball there for the first time ever. And I can't ask any of the guys to cover it. Oh Would you God. like to go? I mean, he really actually said that. Yeah, so yeah, yeah. That's the, that's the era we were living in. And of course, I said, yes, I sure would like to go. The uh, U.S. team had um, Nancy Lieberman on it, among wow. others, who are quite, quite well known in women's basketball history. Probably the best. It also meant that I got to cover, I got to cover Greg Luganis in diving when he was 16 years old. That was his first Olympics. He won the silver medal, I think. I got to cover, I always... Kevin, you like these bad jokes. I covered Caitlyn Jenner when she was Bruce. In, in Montreal, I remember yeah, that. The decathlon and a bunch of other track and field stuff. I mean, once you're there, you just, and gymnastics, Nadia Komenich, who was the first gymnast ever to get perfect 10 scores. And I was there to write about it. It was just fantastic. Oh, and what a time. I mean, uh, those were so, that's before there was so much cable, so much cable television. I mean, everybody watched any. the Olympics, yeah. right? You, you know, I mean, there was Munich was the first time I became aware of something in it. That, like the whole country shut down to watch these games. Montreal was the same thing. Yeah. Uh, I remember that. Um, but so I think you're, so that's interesting. You were proactive and you were an advocate for it. And, you know, it was interesting. Um, a, a friend of mine uh, that I'm staying with, I'm actually out in Nantucket, he uh, was a, he's a Yale grad and knew you uh, back then. He was he was roommates with George W. Bush and a couple other people. I'm like back in those days, and I said, uh, you know, I told him the story about you with the hockey team, with the field hockey team. So tell us a little bit about that. What that must have been like. You were you were at Yale and you you played field hockey in high school, and there was nothing for you when you got there. Yeah, that's right. Well, that's because I went to Yale the first year they took women, so they they had never had women undergraduates before. 
And in planning for it, again, we're, this is, I went in there in the fall of 1969 and there were pockets of the country where women's sports were popular. I was lucky to have grown up in the Philadelphia area where women's sports are very popular and have been for a long time. And I thought it was just normal for a girl to play field hockey. I, I did not know until I went to Yale that that was not normal all across the country. I thought right. everywhere girls were doing what I did. And, you know, so I went to ask where to sign up for the field hockey team. And they, you know, kind of looked at me like I was two heads bars yeah. or something. They yeah. didn't any idea. They said, well, you can use the swimming pool and you can use the, the tennis courts. And it was kind of like, wait a minute, what's wrong? <laughs> this man's not really hearing what I'm saying here. I don't want to swim. I don't want to play tennis. Um, yeah. So I started it basically. That's the story. I started right. another, another girl and I, who she was also from Philadelphia. We started it because just because we wanted to play, we, we just wanted to play and we didn't think it was fair not to be allowed to play. I mean, when you graduate, once you graduate from college, it's very unlikely that you're going to get to continue to play. Right. So we wanted to play in college. It wasn't fair. And I, I think, you know, part of what I've talked to with Chris on this show is about how people don't remember their history. I think a lot of uh, men and women take history for granted and forget about it sometimes. So it's always good to remind them. Um, yeah. Chris, do you have a question for Lori? Yeah, I was, you know, I'm at LMU now, but I was at Cal State LA for many years. And that, that's where Billie Jean King came from. And so mm -hmm. I've heard a lot of stories, obviously, you know, she's well touted. Um, but, you know, your, your story is heroic in its own way as well. You know, maybe not as publicized, but it's cool to hear you, you share these kinds of stories because it wasn't that many years later. I was like 1995-ish that I was at UMass uh, being an assistant coach on the women's side and, and of soccer and women's sports were booming there. And that's not that long after that you were there. And so it's amazing how far we've come in a short amount of time. Yeah. These stories don't get told unless you're voice your voice is, is saying them and we're celebrating them so i don't know if i have a question i think i'm just generally well, chris applauding. i would like to jump in and say what, what you said about being at umass in 95 i mean that was 22 years later so yeah. it maybe wasn't that much later but it was 22 years after i graduated but the other thing i was thinking when you were talking is that all women in different sports have had their own story about having to start something to begin to advocate for themselves and for more equal treatment. Billie Jean King was obviously a fantastic role model and leader and led the way and was in a sport that a lot of people followed. The same happened after a while with track and field with the Olympics and a lot of people followed it. Then it started to happen with basketball and now with soccer. But along the way, I'm sure you could find many more people like me who were starting their gymnastics team or their volleyball team or their crew rowing team or there some aspect of track and field you know uh used to be that women were not uh considered for the the field sports you know javelin and hammer throw and things like that and a lot of women wanted to do that and why not so anywhere you look you're going to find people who, who who women who did this themselves and the second thing that helped was the passage of title nine but that was title nine was passed in 1972 Right. which was the first year that our field hockey team at Yale became a varsity sport, a full-fledged varsity sport. But there's no connection because there was so much rulemaking and there was subsequent wrangling about how to implement Title IX. So it, it didn't directly benefit me, but it definitely benefited women's sports who came along after that. When you well, started with the field hockey team, were they an NCAA like uh, sport right away? 
Uh, yes, I think so. Now that's a good question. No, they couldn't have I think been. They were, yeah. no, that would have still been the AIAW days. Yeah, yeah. But okay. the only the map, the important uh, unit for us was the Ivy League, and so it, it was becoming an Ivy League sport was the main thing, and and right. becoming a varsity, which means more money, more funding, better uniforms, better equipment, and stuff like that. But when I got to the Daily News, when in this after the episode with women's basketball and then with the 1976 Olympics, Olympics uh, I was again fortunate because um, the guy who was the beat writer for the Rangers ice hockey team, I always like to say ice hockey team, you know, because I'm a field hockey player. So I like to <laughs> not call it hockey. I like to call it ice hockey. But anyway, um, the guy who was covering them couldn't cover them that season. And it was kind of a last minute thing. And they said, would you like to cover the Rangers? And so I said, yes, I would. And I covered the Rangers. Uh, it was the fall of 76 and then coming into 77. And then they said, oh yeah, there's this other sport. I think in the back of their minds, it was like not too harmful if we let a woman cover soccer because it's not very popular anyway. So they right. said, how would you like to cover the cosmos? And of course, you guys, everybody on this call knows that that was like a dream job. Yeah. But to the editors at the New York Daily News, that was sort of an afterthought job. And um, you might as well give it to the girl, you know? Right. So when I first started covering soccer, I needed to learn more about it. And one of the things that enabled me to learn more about it, I think, quickly was that it's very much like field hockey. It's really the same game, except we play with a stick and a ball instead of kicking a ball. But the positions, and strategies and playmaking and even down to the goalkeeper. And it's very much, very similar. It was quite easy to make that transition. I loved it. I just loved it. And I was also lucky in another respect, which was that the year I started covering the Cosmos, 1977, was the first year they played at Giants Stadium. So right. I was not part of the the even more legendary history of Randall's Island and the horrible- Live toy and all that. Well, yeah. Toy, I knew very, very well. He was still there when I was covering, but, but yeah, the very early days, um, I was, I was not trekking out to Randall's Island, but I went, I got to go to Giant Stadium and it was much more professionalized. Warner Communications owned the team. Pelé was there that summer. They also got Franz Beckenbauer that summer of 77 wow. and uh, Carlos Alberto. So the really, really high class players in both the sense of player and human being, really classy human beings, Pelé, Beckenbauer, and Carlos Alberto. The best ones scary. always are, the best ones always are Bobby Orr and Gretzky. I mean, it's, you know, I want to make a connection though here because when Pelé came, uh, Mr. Ross brought him over and all of a sudden, boy, soccer was on the map on the front page for not so much the sport itself, but for the Pelé personality and the start of this wild league. Uh, it's, it's when I started to play soccer. And oh. uh, so it was, and what you're talking about, the people's attitude back then was uh, I stopped playing American football and uh, all kinds of homophobic slurs were thrown my way about what an effeminate game it was. It was un-American. It was mm -hmm. commie round ball, pinko commie round ball, all this yeah. stuff. It, it, but, you know, it, it sort of uh, sort of vulcanized my feelings about what Title IX represented about how, boy, you just want to play a game. What's wrong with that? And you, people won't even let you play it. Um, you know, without you know, throwing uh, slurs at you and things. So, so I've always been a big Title IX, you know, person proponent, especially having a daughter. But I think that 
I think that's kind of maybe how you got in there because of that sexist nature of what was happening back then. And then I read a quote by you about saying covering the cosmos because they were such colorful personalities because mm-hmm. those are the big ones, but there were other players who filled in oh, yeah. and they always had an entourage, an interpreter, a, a gopher, a gopher, a, just all these people would be around. And they're coming from cultures that are even more sort of sexist and uh, and different. And boy, the things you must have seen and heard as a young reporter in, in those uh, locker rooms, uh, uh, plus all the pageantry and the color that used to be in the cosmos and the, you know, these stuff. Jagger used to take a helicopter into to Giants Stadium, Mick Jagger, and to watch the games. It was just a, it was just such a happening every single game. Yeah, uh, must have been a lot of fun. Yeah, yeah, it was. They were they were colorful people, colorful owners. Um, you mentioned Mick Jagger. The reason for a lot of the celebrities coming was not so much Steve Ross. It was Amit Erdogan, who was the head of Atlantic Records and was the you know, the one who could decide whether you get your record made or not for a lot of these people. And he was a passionate soccer fan and he was at every game and he and he knew it, his stuff, too. So that was one of the um, attractions. But the, it, in terms of the sexism, I think that once again, I was a little bit lucky in that a lot of the players who came from overseas, you know, from Brazil and from Europe, um, they thought that having women reporters around was something American. Like they didn't object oh, necessarily because they thought, oh, this is the way they do it in America, which actually wasn't true in the earliest days, but they didn't know, you know, right. that for, uh, I, I think that was, that was helpful. That's a and great by point. By the time I yeah. started covering the cosmos, there were a few more women started to cover sports as well. So. Yeah, that's exactly what I was going to ask. It's like all these different countries, the players come together. Yeah. And what, what, the, what the reaction was towards you when they first saw you as a reporter there? Did you get, you know, comments as to, oh, the, you know, besides just saying it's American, is did they speak to the possibility of having a colleague in their country doing that kind of work? Did they even jest in that way? You know, I think it depended on the player. I mean, when you get to know the players just at practice and around the field and around the hotel and around the bus and so forth and so on, they get to know you as a person. You no longer are a woman journalist, you know, this this outsider, this this sort of uh, symbolic figure. You're just Laurie. The other thing you have to remember is they're reading what you write and they're That's objecting hard, to it or not object, but yeah. they might not like what you wrote about a game they played. They're going to be just as annoyed with you if you're female or if you're male. Right. Or happy with you. It can work both ways. But um the main thing is to show that you know what you're writing about, that you're not writing stupid stuff that, oh, that they could say, oh, my God, only a woman would write that. Obviously, right. she doesn't understand soccer. That was my greatest fear. So that's why I learned every bit I could about the sport and the lore and the legends. I remember at one point asking Dennis Stewart what the difference was between Manchester United and Manchester City. Can you imagine? Can you imagine? <laughs> I mean, I, I'm embarrassed to tell you that now. Yeah. But, but that was like in my first month or two of covering. And, you know, I just I just was learning. I mean, the only way you learn is by asking. Um, yep. I always think about the experience of the guys who I, I was aware of Pele. That's why I went there. But the guys who spoke to me and I empathize with them on the field was Ricky Davis, Jeff Durgan, uh, Steve Moyers. Um, and you covered them as well. And it must have been a different world for them because they didn't have the entourages and things. What was it like covering them? 
Now, Warner Roth, don't forget, Warner Roth was that in his day was the captain of the Cosmos when he was the most famous American player before. A Brooklyn boy, Chris, I think. Uh, yeah. One of my favorites was Bobby Smith, who's a Trenton boy. And, oh, and everybody loves Bobby. Yeah. And very, very. And I used to have huge arguments with Paul Gardner because he thought Bobby Smith was not skillful, let's just say. And, and I said, I didn't care. He's so passionate. He plays so hard. He's, you'd want Always. him on your team if you want to win. Okay, I always think about that with the, you know, because Ricky Davis's poster was on my wall. I, I eventually played with Durgan a little bit and Steve Moyers in the indoor league. And these were my idols growing up. And then they were just American players. And to yeah. be under that sort of pressure. And then even if you're playing, people are going, he's only playing because he's an American and yeah, we, you know, they did have that. You had to play a certain amount of American players and most had their green card. Really. They weren't even like, they weren't even could have born oh, yeah. and raised here. It was, yeah. it was, it was really something. So um, what was the first world cup that you covered? The first world cup I ever saw was 1978 Argentina um, in Madison square garden, sitting with Franz Beckenbauer. Wow. Really? Because that was the only place you could see the games on TV. It was a closed circuit. You know, you had to pay to pay admission and the cosmos organized for all of us to go for whatever games. I can't remember if it was all the games or just important games or whatever. So right. even Beckenbauer had just signed the previous summer and it was, it was the first world cup that he wasn't playing in. And um, he had to go to Madison square garden with all the rest of us and watch because the NASL schedule was underway. He couldn't like take time off to, fly down and watch in person the first one i went to in person was 1990 in italy which was fantastic and the u.s was there right the u.s was at that one briefly. i think <laughs> briefly. yeah briefly very briefly yeah but um yeah. yeah and then 94 was here and that was very exciting and uh lots of lots of work yeah i had a question about you know being so close to the the cosmos you got to see them you know at, at their greatest point at their highest point and and i'm curious based on the soccer that you watch nowadays how do you think they would compare if you were to take the best cosmo team and drop them into modern day whether that's you know the premier league or whether that's in mls do you have a, a context on that to share that's a really good question chris mm. I, I mean it's a tough one because there's a question of any kind of all-star team could it beat a really good team that plays together all the time and right. what the Cosmos were was an all-star team. There's no doubt about it. Yeah. They were a really good all-star team because of, first of all, the caliber of the players. And second of all, that caliber of player knew how to play as a team. Like they knew how to integrate themselves. I think they probably would not stand up very well against, you know, an all-star team of this era from, from the top leagues in the world. They might stand up well against uh, all-star MLS team, but maybe not, hmm. maybe not. And then if you put them against a championship team, if you put them against a Real Madrid or a Barcelona or a Arsenal, let's just say for argument's sake. Oh, uh, I think we got an Arsenal fan on our hands, Chris. Uh -huh. yeah. I detected it. <laughs> I don't know. I don't know. That, I think it's a really good question though. It's, it makes me think. And, uh, you know, there were a lot of good players besides those big name guys. Yeah, because it's an all-star team, but at the same time, you know, they were a club team. So they did play together, okay. train together. Okay, maybe they smoked their cigarettes and had a night out. But, you know, they did train every day, and they are great pros. So at a certain they point, you, you know, there is some there is some 
you know, uh, harmony that develops between the players, right? Yeah. As you say, no and matter they, who the coach is, they're so good enough that they're so good. They can create their own harmony. That's exactly right. And they competed with each other too, because the nature of the kinds of athletes they were, they pushed each other. They, you know, they, they competed for positions. I mean, aside from Pelé and Kinalia, mm. <laughs> right. but otherwise there's a lot of competition for positions. But, you know, you mentioned, you mentioned Eddie Fermani, you know, great coach. Um, and what I thought sort of happened with the Cosmos was that there were so many personalities, so many different languages, so many variables that they almost needed a psychologist, a psychiatrist to come in and sort of just manage personality. They're all great players. They, they yeah. got the best players around and, and it was just sort of managing these guys and, and yeah. keeping their, their attitudes up. I have a question. I have a question for Chris. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Do you think that the first World Cup winning women's team, the Michelle Akers in that era, how would they stack up against today's top women's team? Yeah, that's a great question. I mean, you have like some really iconic players in that group, like, you know, a Julie Foudy and Michelle Akers, uh, Mia Hamm, that I, I, I think make every team every year, if you know what I mean, like in, in, in their best spot, they're, they're always going to make the world cup teams. But I think we've come so far in terms of nutrition and fitness and regeneration that, you know, there are some other players that, that maybe wouldn't make the squad now compared to where they are today. Right. So I think it's probably a hybrid of a team, you know, if you were to look at it that way, because some, some just had some great talent and work ethic and got to where they want where they got to almost on their own in a pretty barren landscape, right? Yes. Like they had the advantages, but you know, of title nine, especially at North Carolina and whatnot, but that team nowadays, like a Michelle Akers, she's on every team throughout history in the world. Yeah. She, that, that she's exceptional. And I think yeah. she's reality too. Yeah. That you, but if you go down the list, there's like four or five, like Christine Lilly, did she not make the team? Like, you know, there, there's probably five, six even that, that are in every team every year. That's what made that team so amazing. Not only the historic aspect of that team, but. And now you know, the question is what about other countries? Cause it's yeah. been so gratifying to see the way women's soccer has grown in our yeah. country. Yeah. Um, the, you know, really great appeal and, and, fan appetite for it and now that's starting to happen elsewhere too so i wonder if how long do you think the u.s women's team is going to be so be so dominant oh i think that that day has come that that bell has been rung you know because you have so many players that have come around the world who have come to the u.s to to play at the college soccer level and then go back to their countries you have loads of players who are doing that but then you have the biggest fish now. Now you have Barcelona who's interested in a women's team and, you know, uh, Manchester Arsenal. United, Chelsea, Ar- uh, Arsenal, there you go. Yeah, Chelsea. Um, and and you, you now look at what they've all done. Yeah. And, and they're now starting to pay more than the NWSL. And there's some challenges there because if you think about the infrastructure behind those clubs, it's hard for our league here to compete with that. Yes. So it's, it's going to be an interesting landscape where, you know, people, I think a lot of people want to live in the U.S., but at the same time, those teams are starting to be more and pay more. So the light gets a little bit bigger on those teams now. It's almost a mirror image of MLS itself that they can't compete as well with the top uh, foreign club systems. Right. But they're getting better and better. But it's still a leap no in terms of financial backing and yeah. everything else to get to that level. And now that seems to be starting to happen with the women, too. Yeah, you there's know, only Corey, a handful of teams right now that are ahead of us, but you know that's growing by the by every five years, add three more teams. Yeah, yeah Chris and I talked about this before you came on, Lori. That uh, you know, I'm concerned about the women's team right now because they beat Jamaica, uh, they beat Haiti, and and Jamaica are the two people that have to qualify in, and sort of worried that the competition isn't as difficult 
as what the European teams are facing now in the Euros. And, uh, you know, they're, they're a little more, they're going to become a little more battle hardened. And we've watched at each World Cup that, that it's closing, you know, the gap is closing. And yeah. like Chris said, I, I think it's there. So it'll, it'll, it will be very interesting. Because it's also interesting when you talk to, you know, if you're at a summer camp and talking to kids, they're like, well, why can't the men win the World Cup? The women win the World Cup all the time. I'm like, it's, <laughs> it's more complicated than that, kids. Yeah, so, you know, that's it, right. it really is. So, um, well, Lori, as I said, we, uh, I've so enjoyed this. I look forward to, you know, I had been reading you for a long, long time. I was glad we got to sit across from each other and, uh, and get to know each other a little better face to face. What an amazing career you, you've had and, and, and are still having. You've made an incredible impact, uh, not just in this game that we love, but in, boy, your, your work on a field hockey team for Yale and uh, Title IX and just uh, and everything else. Uh, it's been really uh, wonderful to, uh, to talk to you. And, uh, and learn a little Thanks. bit more about you. I hope you, you join us again on Over the Ball because this has been really fascinating. It's been really great. Thank you very much, Kevin and Chris. Thank you. Not Chris so much. Thanks, Lloyd. <laughs> <laughs> so I was, I was going a little walk down history lane, a stroll as they were. That's a lot of history there, brother. That was, uh, you were before you were born, I think, Chris. Do you remember Pele? When you, when you're gonna get States? you're gonna get ten of those. You've already said six of those, so you get what? four more of those. Cosmos were before you were born. Comments. Well, I, you haven't answered the question yet. Were they? I have every single time. What year is, were you born? I remember watching the Cosmos See, he in still the seventies in New York, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. You do all right. You did. Yeah. What were you like? An embryo? A zygote sitting in a chair? That. Yeah. No, I was, well, I was born in 71, so I got some Cosmos. I got okay. it in. Oh, man, you're old. I yeah, you're but old. I, no one loves the Cosmos like you. Yeah, well, no, it was it was very formative. It was uh, it was pretty amazing to go to those games. So, uh, all right, what do you got on deck now? You've had a big recruiting trip, uh, take a couple weeks off with the family, or you get started in August with the preseason? Yeah, today's July 5th. We're on the field uh, August 5th, so we've got a month. So start getting ramped up with the staff and start getting everything organized for preseason, and that's what everyone on the college game is doing now. Dude, OTB will be interesting. I'll be in Edinburgh, and you'll be uh, doing going through, what do you do, triple, uh, triple sessions for the girls? What do you do? Yeah, we do some double days, not all of them, but we'll have a morning one and then an afternoon one, um, but we mix and match that. We don't. You know, the days of just running people into the ground are over. So we, we try to, you know, I wish they were over when I was playing, training. man. I wish they were over when I was playing. Boy, everybody just, everybody's legs would be up every moment they had just right? sitting there. Yeah. Uh, all right. Well, good stuff, man. I uh, hope you got some uh, some players out of your recruiting uh, your trip. Uh, I got to go in a rehearsal for Fear of Heights, which will be in Edinburgh. I'll let you know how that goes. But, uh, but we'll be back next week on Over the Ball. Chris, uh, have a good week with your kids. Uh, go somewhere, do something, uh, reintroduce yourself to your wife now that you're back. Yes. Um, and, uh, yes. And, and, and enjoy your family. Yeah. And listen, have a, a great time rehearsing your one man show. I didn't yeah, know that I do was it possible. Alone. It's but... really, yeah. <laughs> yeah. How do you rehearse a one man show by yourself? It's really kind of weird. I'm talking to myself. <laughs> yep, exactly. So, all right, guys, uh, for Lori Mifflin, I'm Kevin Flynn. That's Chris Shamides. I'd like to thank Octane Media and, of course, Lori for being our guests on Over the Ball. We'll talk to you next time, everybody, on OTB. Mm-hmm.